Welcome to our podcast. It's not prod. I can't. It's pod. I think I think I need to teach language mythologies right about now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. Hey, Lisa. Good morning, Sarah. How's it going? You know, not too shabby. Wonderful. Yep. On this lovely Monday morning. I know. I know. Mondays, you know what? This is the beauty th- beautiful thing about working for yourself, really. Mondays weren't that bad. No. no. And uh, you ha- dealt with a little uh, prom stuff this weekend. I did. How'd that go? Yeah. My daughter went to prom and we had 20 kids here at the property. I saw the pictures. It was so beautiful, though. Yeah. The pre-prom dinner, the yeah. candlelight. You Like, you're really setting a tone there. I know. It was like a little mini wedding reception, and I thought, why am I going so big for kids who have no appreciation for China? But I wanted to use it. So I know. Anyway, it was fun. Yes. So this is so fun. Who do we have in the confessional today? It's not just you and I. We're not going to talk about prom for an hour. (laughs) We are super excited this morning to have Stacey Pavelko in with us today. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit about you and um, how your Monday's going? (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, So I'm faculty at Binghamton Binghamton University. And one of the fun, fun things that I like being about faculty is this term, I don't have Monday teaching. So like you, like my Monday is I'm working from home and I have a whole list of things I want to get done. And it's kind of really pleasant. <laughs> well, and I saw a little furry friend next to you for yes. a minute there. Yes, yes. I have a dog and she, as soon as she hears people talking or hears me talking, then she has to come investigate if somebody is in here or if I'm just on the computer. <laughs> and I was, she just barked. I hope that you did I not didn't even hear it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no. I know. That is, it's so true though to the Monday thing. I mean, but then I guess I will say then maybe Tuesday is not going to be great (laughs) in this case, but there is something to be said for that. And I think that was what I had decided a long time ago is I don't, I didn't want my Mondays to like, like I just dread them all day on Sunday and like, you know, couldn't even enjoy the day because I just was thinking about all the things on Monday. So I know it is nice. And it's nice to have you in the confessional. We first, I mean, obviously we knew who you were um, and we've heard you speak at other places, but we had the privilege of working with you for Embracing Expertise, which is a series that we host um, once a year. And it was all on language sampling. And so we were thrilled that you agreed to do this so we could just have a conversation about that and, and some of the things we learned. And um, yes, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. The Embracing Expertise series was a ton of fun. And I hope people um, walk away feeling like a little empowered of how how to approach language sampling and how to think about it. And so it's really exciting. Of course, you know, I spend lots and lots of time thinking about it. So, Well, I think it's one of those things that people come out of grad school. There's a lot of stuff that you go to grad school, you think you're supposed to learn all of the like fairy dust stuff to assess and treat the students that you're working with. And it's not always that case. So I remember language sampling being very painful in graduate school. And we had to, you know, formally do it and get a type token ratio. And, you know, I never, I I knew what I needed to do, but I wasn't 
sure why. Like I knew the why was I was supposed to differentiate between typical language and um, maybe atypical language, but I, I I didn't really know why the importance of it. So can we maybe start there of how um, this even became your passion and, and your um, focus in, in at the university? Um, you know, for me, before I went back and got my PhD, I worked as a speech language pathologist in the schools for three years. And one of the challenges I had was, you know, you would do the testing and you would have children who passed the testing and you're like, yeah, but I know this kid is struggling. And then there were children and those were the kids that just were really, it bothered me. I'm like, how I, uh, these children need help. How can I help them? And, you know, the more I use standardized tests, for me, the, the less happy I became with them. And then it was like, well, if I don't do this, what am I going to do? And similar to you, I had that same similar experience in graduate school of, well, the way I was taught to do language sampling, I, I have 105 kids on my caseload. There's no way I can do language sampling. And so then fast forward, you know, I got my PhD and I saw uh, Bob Owens doing a talk on language sampling and it was, you know, something I've always been really interested in. So I went to the talk and as I was sitting there, all these light bulbs start going off in my brain. So I went to him afterward and said, I'm really interested in this and your ideas and would you be willing to collaborate? And, and that was like, I don't know, 13 years ago now. That's amazing. So that was our, our whole passion became how can we make language sampling a, a useful clinical tool for speech language pathologists, particularly those who work in the schools where you have very limited time and, and you might not be able to spend an hour plus on each child that you're trying to assess and then, you know, progress, you know, follow up with progress monitoring and so forth. Um, I have like full body chills right now too, when you just tell that story, because we talk a lot about our experience and how we um, created a solution that we so desperately needed as, as working um, clinicians in the school setting. And so to the fact that you're hearing him speak and you're like, okay, I think I've got this thing. And then not only did you have the idea and then you guys had the connection, but then you made it happen is like, the, that's always like the moment that I just think, you know, obviously the universe intervenes or something magical happens. It's so cool. And I love, there's nothing I love more than a solution to a problem that's practical. And so the fact that you guys did this is well, so incredible. And I guess for people who are not aware, can you talk a little bit about what that um, led into? What did you, what did you create? Yeah. So what, well, we, Bob had already had the idea of sugar, which is, language sampling and you use 50 child utterances. And when we tried to first get sugar published, we had made the statement in, in the manuscript that um, SLPs don't routinely use language sampling. And the pushback we got from reviewers was, you don't know that, you know, the, the survey, the, the seminal survey data that's cited a lot is the Kemp and Klee article. That's from 1997. And with the advent of technology, we, you don't know that they're not sampling. So Bob and I looked at each other and said, they just gave us a great research project. Survey. And, you know, two thirds of our participants told us 
in an entire school year, they never used language sampling. And we went, I mean, sorry, one third said they'd never used it. And then of the remaining two thirds, most of them said, well, I collect one to 10 samples a year. And, and, and our thought was, so even if you're doing it, you're not doing it with a lot of regularity. If you're you know, doing one to 10 in a whole school year. And so that was our thought. And then we said, well, we looked at the barriers of what it is that SLPs say, here are the reasons why I don't language sample. Because we said, you know, language sampling has been around for like 40 years. And you, all of us here know you were told and probably shown and taught in graduate school to do language sampling. So if you're not doing it, just telling you to do it is probably not going to change, <laughs> change your clinical behaviors. So we said, let's come up with something that addresses these barriers. And of course, the biggest barrier was time. So it's sort of a plus and a minus because on one hand, sugar is intentionally designed to be quick. But then we also get feedback about, but you only have four measures or you only look at child utterances. And we're like, yes, that's true because we're trying to be quick. So there's some trade-offs there, but we were intentional about don't transcribe examiner utterances, only transcribe the child utterances. And if you record your samples, which we strongly encourage you to do, you still have that information if you want to go back to it and analyze it for a particular child or a particular purpose. Absolutely, it's there. It's not like, don't delete that recording. Then you have it. Um, but when we think about, you know, that initial diagnosis and that, like that first starting piece, maybe you just need to get the sample and transcribe it and analyze it and then think about how does that fit into the bigger picture of this child's language. Is the fear that um, if I don't have the examiner's utterances too, I don't have context to how this language is being used. And so what, what specifically then is sugar measuring then in just looking at the, the, the child's utterances? We focus uh, really specifically on morphosyntax and okay. intentionally because we know that kids with language impairment, one of the hallmarks of their difficulty is difficulty, particularly with verbs that mark tense and agreement, but in, morph in morphology and in the syntactic elements of language. And so that's our measurements are you know, looking primarily at morphosyntax, a little bit of productivity in terms of total number of words, but really looking at morphology clauses. And that's like right now what we're working on is further analyzing the clause structures and the clause types that older kids are using. And when I say older, I mean, we're looking at like seven to 11 year olds. And I think that was going to be my next question too, was, so who is sugar appropriate for age-wise? So um, our data covers from three years, zero months, all the way up to 10 years, 11 months. And again, it was the idea of thinking about working in a school setting that that kind of covers in many places that'll cover all of your elementary school children, not going to really get into middle school, but it will get the kids transitioning to school age services at age three up through fourth, fifth grade. And that was our hope of offering something that could be used because, you know, there's other data showing that MLU 
doesn't grow very much after age four to five. And in, in our thought is, well, part of that's because of how we're measuring it. If you're only counting specific grammatical morphemes and children start using them, there's nowhere else to grow. And so that's another place where sugar is different is the morphemes that get counted as part of MLU. It's what you've traditionally seen plus more. And the reason for that was looking at, okay, well, if kids are getting older and growing, we have to have things that they can grow into. Yes. Well, and I, one of the things that, um, I was just thinking about when you were talking about the the quickness of it. We had gone, uh, we're near Arizona State University, which is where uh, Lisa and I both graduated. And so every once in a while, we'll go into one of the classes for differential diagnosis um, to talk about like what it's like to be a real a clinician working in the school setting and in the real world, essentially, with these large caseloads. And we always tend to come on the day they just got done with salt and their faces are always just like, like, Oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. Like it was such, you know, it's does, I mean, it does what it's supposed to do and it's an amazing tool, but it's intense. And again, maybe not the most practical and, and realistic way to do it. So when we come in, it's always just in the trying to get them to understand the importance of why they need to be doing the language sampling and a more realistic way to do it and, and how they can do that. Um, and so that's where I was like, thank goodness that you guys took the tool that we do need, because when we're talking language sampling, it really is just looking at more of that contextual language and how are they using it? And it is honestly the probably best way, if only way I know how to really look at grammar, because there's not a lot of great standardized tests that can help me kind of determine what's going on with the grammar and the, the morphology and things like that. Um, and so we're just kind of talking big picture, but can you tell us like, so for sugar, we're still, like you said, we're collecting the utterances. We're only transcribing this, the child's. Um, and then what are we doing with it? We're, I'm not counting type token ratio and I'm not. Yeah. So what am I marking? What am I? Cause that was the part where I just see the kid's face. Like, I don't even know what I just did. <laughs> So we have four measure uh, metrics that we talk about. The first one is total number of words, which is like exactly what it says. How many total words do we have in the sample? And then we have mean length of utterance, sugar, and it's mean length of utterance just amplified a little bit in terms of you would still mark past tense ED just like you would or progressive ING. But then we also add in like the L-Y marker that makes something an adverb, the U-N unprefix, like unhappy. Um, and that came because we had pilot data from about 170 kids. And so we said, well, moving beyond Brown's grammatical 14 morphemes, which are wonderful, but even Brown himself, if you read his book, said, I'm not even, we're not sure these are the right things we should be counting and looking at. So we said, well, what else is there? And that's how we kind of tallied and said, well, let's include these other markers, um, other morphemes. And so that's in the article where we like outline them. And then when we do workshops and talk to people and do presentations, say, if you're going to do sugar, you really have to pay attention to that table because like it's not second nature to you to mark that LY ending as a separate um, morpheme. So that's MLU. And then we have words per sentence. So 
what we do is we go through the transcript and just delete out all of the utterances that are not meeting our definition of a sentence. And then we do clauses per sentence. And that's the metric that truthfully, we've been spending a whole lot of time this last year trying to figure out because it did not show growth in the older kids. And we were like very perplexed. And then it occurred to us, we think we know why. And we're further analyzing the data. And that's where we're at to say, maybe it's just not number of clauses, but it's it's more of a qualitative shift in the type of clauses that children are using. And so that's where we're at now is trying to kind of pull that apart and figure out what, what complexity, especially when you're talking about like five-year-olds to 11-year-olds, you know, that's very different than talking about a 15 or a 16-year-old. Well, thinking back to when I used to do language sampling myself, very, very, very long time ago, I feel like now, but um, it's funny, we have actually somebody in our team that does like our marketing implementation and we try to get video testimonials from our users. And so they will answer a prompt basically that is like, you know, tell us about SLP toolkit and how it's, it's helped you in your day-to-day lives. And uh, we were talking the other day and he's like, man, everybody talks and run on sentences. And when he said that, I go, well, it, that is funny because it is conversational. And that is, we just keep going and we add an and, and then we, add, and we, you know, go on and on. And I remember that being something that when I was actually transcribing language samples, I was like, where does this sentence start? Where does this sentence end? It could be a giant run on. So do you have criteria for kind of marking that or, or canceling out those sort of connecting words? We do. So, you know, we listen when we're talking about transcribing an utterance, we talk, we use the prosodic cues of did the child pause for more than two seconds? Did they inhale? Because we don't take a breath at random times. It's tied to syntactic boundaries. Um, so those are kind of the things we're looking to mark in utterance. But then when we get these run-ons and we can say a really long utterance on one breath group and it sounds like one utterance, that's we do have the rule and it is specific to and. And in the interest of being very honest, we did not invent this rule. This actually came from developmental sentence scoring where you can have two sentences joined by and. And when they add that third one, that now becomes the next utterance. Okay. And it's because in, in our data, we went back through that normative data. We had 270 kids in this study. 96% of all conjunctions that were used were and. So that's where we said, yeah, we, we can't have these really long utterances because really what children are doing is just stringing things together with and. And that's very different than saying, when I went to the store, I bought cookies versus I went to the store and I bought cookies. Right. See, this is like, again, this is where the moment where I'm like, oh, this is all too smart for me. <laughs> and did I even go to grad school? I don't remember anymore. Um, but um, one of the places that, so your website is amazing with um, having all, and it's the resources. Am, is everything free, by the way? Yes. Everything. everything is free. Um, the only thing that I guess you could say is not free is we have, we published a couple of articles in SIG1 Perspectives. And in order to access those articles, you have to be a member of one of the SIGs. You don't have to be a member of SIG1, but you have to be 
a member of A6. So if you're a member of 616, um, you can access all of those perspectives articles. But if you're not a member of a SIG, you don't have access to that content. Um, so I hear Meredith um, from the informed SLP on my shoulder right now telling me, could I just email you then if I'm not part of a SIG or how would I get that if, if that was not? I know people have very mixed emotions too about how much money they are putting into their professional licenses and certifications and stuff. Well, what we, what I've encouraged people and it's a challenging role. Cause I'm all, right now I'm sitting as the editor for SIG one perspectives of a reminder. I know there's a cost associated with joining the SIG. However, we publish forums three to four a year and you for $5 can get CEUs that way by doing the articles and the questions and like SIG one, we also do journal clubs and lately what we've been able to do with those journal clubs is actually invite the authors. And so you actually have an opportunity to interact and ask questions and talk to the authors of That's whatever, so cool. form, which I think is really, really nice. Cause you know, I've sat on both sides. I've been a clinician and then I've been on the academic side and sometimes there's this perception and, and I say to clinicians all the time, I'm a person too. And actually I started out as a clinician, just like you. So, you know, we're very, I'm Bob and I feel we're very, you know, just normal people. You know, yeah. I just spend a whole lot of time thinking about language sampling and maybe more about all, I said, you know, in the schools, you think about a whole lot of different things and because you have all different kids on your caseload, but I spend a whole lot of time on one thing. Yes. Which is so cool. Okay, that's I was I was thinking. I remember it was all free, but I couldn't remember. Um, but your website is insanely helpful, and you guys have all of these really short too. I love the little videos and the just so you can go through real quickly because again, this does overwhelm me. Even when you started talking about clauses again, I like have like a panic attack about. I always struggled with clauses and types and anyway, um, and so everything that they would need to be able to go through and do um, the transcription is all through the site. Yep. And it's not, is it software like salt? No, no, you no. can do everything no. on WordPress, like word. Um, recently, like within the last two months, I know Bob was asked to do a workshop and they did not want him to use word. They wanted him to use Google docs. And I know there were some challenges, but truthfully, my mind has been wrapped up on a few other things. And I'm like, I don't, I, I can't help you with that right now. <laughs> and and then Bob did comment to me, you know, our website is looking a little dated. And I said, okay, well, we'll put that on the to-do list for the summer when I'm not teaching. And because Bob is recently retired. So I'm like, you have oodles and acres of time that I don't have right now. <laughs> so it sounds like a great project for you, Bob. <laughs> you go ahead. So, but we do try to update we, you know, both of us get asked um, to do lots of presentations and workshops for groups. Um, and we're always excited and happy to do that because we feel like most of the participants, the feedback we get is they find what we're doing very helpful to them. And so we try to be really helpful, you know, and that's, we've done presentations at ASHA. So when people go to ASHA, like spend every second you can in, in a, to get the most out of your conference fee that you can. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I do. That's why I was talking about with um, the Embracing Expertise series. There is, I again, the website's insanely helpful. And I think it's very well done for both of you. I didn't notice it. It didn't fill out a date to me. I thought it was wonderful. Um, but to hear you guys present is so powerful. And that's what we're always looking for on, on the bright platform too, is that very practical and relevant. And so it is, it's so nice to have you go through each of those things. Um, I don't know. It's just, there's something about listening to a presentation, do it rather than me go and try and like learn from, you know, I don't know. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? I think it just like connects the dots a little bit more. And so I cannot recommend enough. I'm going to put in our show notes too your website, obviously, but then that, that series, if you guys haven't checked it out yet, um, to go in a little bit more deep dive. So when we're doing these kind of language sampling tasks with our students, um, does sugar lend to doing a certain type of prompt to get it to elicit these so language sugar, samples? Sugar okay. is conversation. And again, it goes back to, we did the survey and it didn't matter whether clinicians, because we looked at the data based on, well, was their case of like early intervention, preschools, you know, early elementary, it didn't matter anywhere from 94 to 97% of our respondents said, I use conversation. So our thought was, you can use conversation, but you have to be very thoughtful and conscious about the way that you interact with the child. And, and so we call it robust sampling. And all we mean by that is you, as the examiner, you offer the child every opportunity to produce complex language. And I, I spend time with my graduate students telling them there is only one person in any communication interaction that you can control. And if you want me to be a little existential, there's really only one person in the entire world that you can control. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it so, is hard I mean, pulling for a little bit when Sarah and I, when we were kind of going full time with toolkit, I was just doing evaluation. So I was doing a lot of language sampling and these were not students that were on my caseload. I was being sent to a school, so they didn't know me. I tend to be pretty good at getting, you know, kids to open up, but it, it is kind of an art with how you form a question, making sure you're not leading them into yes, no responses, find kind of trying to poke around to find out what are they excited about where they will give you kind of their best, most robust language. Um, so you have prompts that you kind of walk people through then that might help with getting what that. Like um, we encourage um, children to tell a narrative. And I know there are some conversational protocols where they actually say, don't encourage them to tell a narrative, but what, you know, we'll see. but instead of saying, um, what did you see at the zoo? Like if they went on a zoo, a zoo field trip, instead of saying, what did you see? Because you're going to get a whole list of animals. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your field trip to the zoo. I wonder, you know, I, I was wondering about your field trip to the zoo. You know, um, tell me how you play your favorite video game. How do you win? So the questions now offer the child the opportunity to say, more and more complex language when you know when a child's trying to describe how to play a video game and how you win that is um cognitively much more demanding and we know from other researchers work children produce more complex language and so that's you know what i tell students you can't control what the child says but what you can do is give them every opportunity to produce that complex language and 
you know, if I prompt you by saying, oh, tell me about, you know, your, tell me about your favorite movie. And all you do is tell me the name of the movie. Well, that's different. And most children with more typical language are going to do more than just tell you the name of the movie. Yeah. And so you can prompt them, oh, tell me more. And, and so those are the kinds of prompts that we use. And we try to remind everybody, especially SLPs, we tend to be, as my daughter calls herself, a chatting box. We tend <laughs> to be very chatty. And we have to remember that when we're working with kids who might have language impairments, they need more time to understand what we've said and then to figure out how to respond to what we've said. So be okay with a slower pace because kids need time. And when you wait, most of the time they offer up something more and, and that's wonderful. That's what we want. So, so well, and you know, I just maybe yeah. spend some time with um, typical developing kids too, because I feel like that's what used to happen with me is I spent so much time with working on those language skills that you kind of forget what typical looks like, which is funny. It's our whole job to kind of differentiate those two. But then, I mean, I would hear kids that had typical language. I'm like, oh my gosh, that child's a genius. Listen to yes. their like advanced language. Oh, skills. Like, oh, no, that's typical language skills. Yep. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I tell my students all the time, if you truly understand what typical is, whether we're talking typical development or for our adult friends, typical aging, when you see, if you really know it, then when you see something that's not typical, you may not know what to call it, but you'll recognize right away, this doesn't look like, sound like what I hear other children or other adults doing. And you're right, you know, you, you can kind of forget just how genius typical kids can seem. And that's where, it's helpful to spend a lot of time with typical kids. And I think it's also good when you work in the schools to help us all keep focused on, remember what are the expectations in the classroom? And is two 30 minute sessions a week really gonna get us there? You know, and, and not to kind of go down a side path there, but just really remembering what typical looks like and the, and the expectations for typical kids in the classroom. Yeah. I know we could go, I would go down that rabbit hole because that is a whole other conversation because I, I, again, the time constraints and, you know, as I understand that everybody is so overwhelmed and, and doing the best we can, but I do think something like this is so important. We, and we had Kelly Farquharson on in a, a couple of years ago talking about something similar. Um, but if we do a better job with maybe the, the, diagnosis. the diagnosis, then it might make our caseloads look different um, you know, so I think these are the things that we, you don't want to take the wrong shortcuts. You know, I, I understand we have things that we have to let go, um, you know, a little bit. I had a professor once too, that I loved. And I remember thinking like, I don't think you've worked in the school or it's been a while <laughs> because uh, that just does not look like my day. I, cause I actually did a program where at ASU, it was kind of a, a new thing where I worked in the schools as an SLPA while I was in grad school. So it was so cool because I would literally go to class and then I would be in the setting the next day. And, and so I could apply those things. But I remember thinking, 
Yeah, it's been a minute because uh, that's not what I, I'm seeing while I'm working. So anyway, but it's the, it's obviously there's some things that we have to kind of, you're just going to have to cut out of your day because the days are so crazy. But this is the one thing that I think we even, we've always tried to convince people how important this is for not only the diagnosis, but the ongoing assessment. Um, and so this is something we're obviously going to do maybe during the initial evaluation process. Um, but then when else should we be, how, I guess, when do we, should we be collecting them? How often? Um, and then what are we using them for other than just diagnosis? You ask an, an awesome question because we haven't, we've always made the recommendation. It is wonderful to use for progress monitoring. And then we did the research looking, we reanalyzed the data to figure out what forms were kids using at each of the ages so that we could help guide thoughts about intervention and what might be appropriate targets. If you were looking at this from a developmental perspective, what are kids doing at that age? And is your child doing those? And, and you know, and you have to fit that into, does that fit in with the curriculum and the, st and the standards of learning for, the, for that particular child? Um, and that's where we, those are the recommendations we've made. And we've said you can absolutely give repeated samples, but we have not ever given specific about like what that timing should look like. And part of the reason is everywhere I go, things are different. So, you know, we previously lived in Texas and we were on a nine week marking period. I came to New York and I'm like, where is my child's report card? And I called the teacher and they're like, oh, we do three a year. I'm like, three? You're like, oh. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, in schools, it might make a lot of sense to kind of coincide with that mark, whatever marking time period you're using, because in many places, SLPs are required to give some kind of a progress report. At least when I worked in the schools, that's how we did it. The progress report went home with the report card. And that's, you know, so that could be a really uh, opportune time to do it. That, but yet recognizing there's a tension between how much time do you have? And, you know, our work has shown that really you can tra um, obtain, transcribe, and analyze the sample in 30 minutes or less. So, you know, well, and I mean, going back to what you said about how most clinicians in the schools are doing it between one to 10, year, 10 times per year, I think that coincides with how many evaluations they're doing. So maybe there is some sort of um, middle ground between not just every three years, maybe not every nine weeks. Um, because even 30 minutes, if you have, like how you said, you had a hundred and some kids that would be, you know, hours and hours, but maybe at least every IEP year when you're looking at, um, how that student, when you're having to report on their strengths and needs, because I do think what I used to kind of get in trouble for, for myself of trying to write a new IEP is I would be so focused on what their goals were and not my speech kids, my speech kids. I felt like the, that was all very, you know, much in a hierarchy. It was really easy to break down, but my language kids, I'd be so focused on what their goals were that I wouldn't really zoom out to kind of see how they were putting it all together. So it's a great way to zoom out and really look at how they are doing in a meaningful kind of contextualized way that they would be, you know, how they would be using their language in the classroom. 
I would say an IEP cycle is a really um, feasible, reasonable kind of goal because, and then you can look to say, okay, so these are the things we've been working on. Are we seeing evidence of them? And do we need to continue working on those or do we need to add something new? You know, just like you would anyway, but I think that data is a lot more functional and a lot easier for you to kind of plan intervention. And what it, so what are you going to do next in intervention? And that's the part like, you know, MLU and in our data, we have diagnostic accuracy data. Like MLU is wonderful to help us thinking about is there a disorder or not? It is really not very helpful when I say to you, okay, so you're going to do therapy tomorrow. What are you doing? That's or not going to you. Like it's not, it's not on the list. Yeah. Please not write goals that say increase MLU, unless then you're also going to follow it up specifically with how are you going to do it? Because there's a, a whole variety of ways that you could change a child's language and increase MLU that may not be very helpful to the kid. Well, and I think that's part of too, when you even think of the IEP, it really should be that that present levels should connect with what that goal is. So when you look at the goal, it should be really clear. Like if I did an MLU goal, it was because I stated in the strengths and needs, this is exactly what I'm seeing. These are the areas that, that maybe, you know, I think of even like, sometimes we do, we talk about in courses that we give, like do kind of an encapsulating goal, like a story retell or something where you get a lot of bang for your buck, but that there's reasons it's because you're working on X, Y, and Z, not just, you know, woo, we're just retelling stories. Yeah. Let's retell it again. Let's yeah. do another one. But I have, I have seen that this, we're going to increase the students MLU as a goal and um, not super helpful, especially as, as a receiving SLP of a goal like that. I'm like, what? what where was, where <laughs> are we going with this? Well, when the present levels say something like, oh, student, you know, yeah. It, when that's very small too. I mean, that's kind of our soapbox too, is that when there's just one sentence about, you know, student right. has expressive and receptive language needs and has a lot of friends and plays on the playground yeah. with, you know, with a smile. Right. And then they need to increase their MLE. Like that's usually uh, a We're in professional. I will never forget, I worked in the schools and it was a, a child that came from another school and I'm reading the IEP. And this was a speech sound goal, not a language goal, but the goal was age appropriate production of all speech sounds in error. And I, and I looked at that and I thought, well, that's lovely. Okay. So after I go through the entire document, not once is it ever mentioned. So what are the sounds in error and in what position, et cetera. So I remember saying to one of my colleagues, I just have to pull this child and do some initial baseline testing because I have no idea what I'm going to do in therapy tomorrow. I really don't. We're, we're going to work on age appropriate speech sounds, whatever they might be. Right. right. Oh, I've seen it. We actually, I think I've used that as an example too, because not only, yes, is that not helpful because you don't know which sounds were an error, but doing the data collection for progress monitoring on a goal like that, if they had several sounds and then in all positions of words, and then like it is, Okay, that's a, again. We could go down a rabbit hole of, please pick one observable. That is a goal that the child will never master, like yeah. in one year, not not in one year. And it, yeah. So it was, yeah, that was funny. And I, but the MLU goal is kind of similar. If it's not, you've got to follow it up with. 
So what are the specific structures of language then that you're working on? Are you working on third person singular verbs? Are you working on past tense ED? Like what specifically are you going to work on? You know, and coming back to, we do not work in a vacuum. So how does this tie to the curriculum? Yes. Yes. And I'm so glad you talked about that too. The difference between um, we're, we're doing the language sample and, and again, very quickly, I mean, 30 minutes or less to transcribe a sample and get that kind of data for um, is, is really not that bad and totally doable. Again, like you said, at, at the IEP time. So that information is really good for helping us determine, um, you know, if there is the disorder, what maybe what targets to do, but then the ongoing assessment piece of it for intervention and for guiding what it is that like, how is the child making progress on that goal? How do we need to pivot to help the, the child, you know, during therapy sessions, we don't have to transcribe the language sample every time, but you should be collecting that information, engaging them in conversation, listening. And I, you know, I feel like a lot of even what we've chatted about before is that once you start incorporating these practices into your regular routine, it's really scaffolding your thinking. So then maybe I don't have to write everything out. I'm kind of listening. Oh, I am hearing uns and lees and eds and whatever. And I'm not hearing this and this and this. So I'm not transcribing. I'm just listening to it through my clinical lens. And I, and you know, I tell, I get asked a lot about, well, what goals would you write? And I said, well, you know, I can't ever answer that question because in order to write goals, I need a real child in a real specific context. I said, but I, I agree that you likely have many, many things you could work on and you're going to have to prioritize things. And so that's where, you know, go to what are your grade level standards? So if it's the grade level standard and you and the child's not doing it, that might be a really appropriate goal and tying it to the curriculum. And then you can have conversations and help the teacher of how the teacher can support the child on that goal in the classroom. Can you even work on it in the classroom instead of, you know, speaking to our earlier point about how large your caseload might be? Can you work on these goals in the context of the classroom where you might be able to work now with several children in the classroom? Yeah. I think that's the one thing I know I personally always um, struggled with is I don't have to be doing all of the direct intervention. You know, if the information, I have this information and I can share that with other individuals working with that student and how they can support them. That's also, that's the beauty of being in a school team is that it's not just you. You're not isolated. Right. um, Providing these isolated services. So I do have a question. So we've talked a lot about Sugar being, you know, from age three to about fourth to fifth grade. What about if I'm working with older students? I know my elementary went to sixth grade. Um, and are there any, even though we don't have a sugar for that, are, are there any kind of tips you would have for, for individuals that are working with older students? What should we be looking for? Well, you can still use sugar. You just have to use it thoughtfully in terms of, you know, you might get an MLU and you might look at that MLU and say, well, how does this look compared to and recognizing and certainly not putting this in a report, but for you as you're doing your clinical decision-making and your clinical thoughts about, well, what, you know, if you're comparing to 10 year olds and you have a 12 year old, 
well, wait a minute, this is looking more like a 10-year-old. And we do what we call the sub-analysis, which is where you're pulling the language sample apart even further, looking at what structures are there or not there. And of course, you can do that. You can look and say, well, what's there? What's not there? What, what is the grade level curriculum? What, what is the school asking of this child? And are those pieces, you know, the child using them? And then, you know, sugar isn't the only language sampling method. So you can also think about doing a narrative analysis. And, you know, Doug Peterson and Trina Spencer have freely available things for narrative. Um, Sandy Gillum, I think they, the missile is freely available. Um, so there are, so you could do a narrative sample. If you have adolescents, you know, use Marilyn Napold's work and you can look at doing an expository task. And, you know, you have to go into the articles and pull, pull out the data, but there are things you can do. And like the, one of her expository tasks is just literally, it's the favorite game or sport task. And it's basically like, tell me how you play your favorite game. So it, and those, as I recall, most of those samples are like seven, eight minutes long. So it doesn't have to be onerous. Or incredibly time chat with Marilyn, maybe see if she could come up with like a sugar for older kids. <laughs> sugar 2.0. Exactly. You know, for, for older kids, what do you do? But you know, the narrative, um, and like Doug Peterson and Trina Spencer's work with narratives and story champs, and but it's the narrative language measures is freely available. And like those story retells, and they have progress monitoring ones and so forth, those story retells are like five minutes to do. It's not. It's just kind of knowing what's out there, applying it to the kids that you are and coming up with, I, we talk about this a lot too, just it's those processes. It's incorporating this into your routine. So maybe even if you just start with, if you are working with elementary students, you, we know we have all of these awesome resources for, you know, this age group, then, then start to fill in those gaps with some of these other um, resources as well. And that's one thing as a field you know, the reason why we have to do continuing ed is because things are constantly changing and evolving. And I know it's hard to keep up to date. So I'm very appreciative of things like the SLP toolkit and um, Meredith's. Um, oh, informed, informed SLP. SLP. Yes. Informed SLP. Thank yes. you. Because, I mean, I spend all, all my time reading articles and I can't keep up with everything all the time. But having those little snippets. And, you know, some, I heard somebody else speak on this and I thought, you know, that could actually be really good advice of maybe this school year, you just pick one or two things that you really want to work on and get better at and recognize like you can't do it all right now. And I think for a lot of us, that's kind of a hard. Yeah. Hard I was going to say with our type A personalities in general as SLPs, that's a big ask. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll not do it. We'll fail. And then we'll beat ourselves up for failing. Yeah. But you know, somebody was talking about the laws of 1%. And instead of thinking I'm going to get a hundred percent better, if I got 1% better tomorrow than I am today. And so today's Monday. So that's Tuesday. So then on Wednesday, I get 1% better. Like, and that's where just making reasonable goals for ourselves too. Just like we make reasonable goals for our students of what can I get done in a year? Well, how do I continue my growth as an SLP just for one year? Write your own IEP for a year. 
Yes. Yes. And I think that is so important too, to say that sometimes we do um, have conversations like this, or at least, and I tend to talk about data a lot um, in courses. And I always feel like when, by the time we're done, it's like, oh my gosh, that's not that helpful. You just gave me more to do. Like it, you just, <laughs> now I realized all the things I haven't been doing right. And I need to like, now I've got more work like that didn't help. And that is never the intention behind this conversation. So anyone listening, who's like, I don't do language sampling. So thanks. Like I thought I was doing okay. And now you're telling me I really need to be doing this as part of my process. Um, it's that's never the point of this conversation. I think it's simply like we want to give again, really practical tools that will make your life better once you do it. So like, again, yeah, don't think you have to do this with your entire caseload tomorrow, but like start to try some of these things. And I think it's going to make your life better. It's going to obviously make your, um, what you're providing for that student better. Your confidence that yeah. you, you are making recommendations based on data that you could then back up. If somebody was like, what do you mean they need to do this? Well, let me tell you. Yeah. Because I have all this data. Well, I, I do have a question. Is there any, um, have you guys gone down any of the research paths of how second language learners acquire? And we think about it a lot. And then we're faced with the, per, the complexities of, but how would we collect this data? Yeah. And so that, and, and so we, we've thought about it and we haven't figured out like, what would sugar norms for English language learners, what would that look like? Like, Well, the variables and so, how they acquire the English is so dramatically different. You know, are like, they from a household first, that's monolingual? Did they ever, were they first exposed to English when they first walked into the door of the school? Did they have any previous years? Being, I mean, there's so many questions that will impact that. I was hoping you had a really... <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, for this. No, I knew that that for you is moving into dynamic assessment is really the way to go for English learners because yes. and, and and for kids who are culturally and linguistically diverse because dynamic assessment will start to tell you not what the kid doesn't know but how the child learns. Yes. Yeah. And if see that you're learning the way we would expect a typical learner to learn, then you probably don't have an impairment. I'm not saying you don't need help, but the supports that you need would be very different than the kinds of supports if you had a disorder. And it's not and special then education then. It's not special education's onus to provide that support. And I will say I worked, um, we live in um, Arizona and I had a school that was 98% second language, English language learners. And it became really clear who those kids are when you're even in a therapy group. So I was doing dynamic assessment almost without even really understanding what that was. But you could tell that the way that kids would pick up learning, I'm like, this is just a kid that's learning English. This is not an impaired language learner. Exactly. And those kids who are really, truly just typical learners learning English, the way that they learn, the speed at which they learn, et cetera, like they need very different kinds of supports yes. than our children who have language impairments. And, you know, I talk to my students and say, you don't ever want to call somebody, say, remember, we're giving a label. And if the team decides you're a child with a disability, that's a violation of that child's civil rights if they are not, in fact, a child with a disability. I said, and then taking it one step further, we want to make sure... You 
everybody gets the kind of help that is most helpful to them. And that will, you know, I said, even typical learners, and that's, you know, the whole idea between multi-tiered systems of support, RTI, even typical learners will have things with which they struggle. That's okay. Like I can think back very specific things in my curriculum that I, I remember. I remember a teacher saying to me, Stacey, you're so smart. I don't know why you don't get this. And I remember the time like being so ashamed of like, why don't this just doesn't make sense to me? And that, you know, so we all will have something that's hard for us and we, but we need the right kind of help to, to get us where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that goes back to, it will help your caseload if you are very, you know, very thoughtful and about, you know, the, the type of assessment and things that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We want to get all and only the children who truly have language impairments being identified as children with language impairments. Yes. Yeah. Well, I feel like we have done a good job kind of um, going through some of the, the reasons why language sample analysis is necessary and maybe some ways to incorporate that into the um, daily or maybe not daily routine, but at least with more than one to 10 times a year within your your um, speech rooms. But um, when people want more information, we definitely are going to link in the show notes to your embracing expertise courses. Um, those were phenomenal. And, and um, the website. Yes. And then also, can we do a teaser? Why or- no? I was just wondering, can we? Yeah, yeah. why not? Let's do it. We are um, really honored to have you on board for this summer's SLP Summit. So that will be a one hour course. So please, we will link to um, that. Registration isn't open for that yet. That will be later in July that that um, is available. But we haven't even announced who's speaking. I know. There you go, everybody. (laughs) You got a teaser. Well, Well, thank you you so much for your time today and um, for this conversation. It's so important. It's like one of those things, I think when things are hard, I used to maybe just sweep under the rug. Like, I know it's important, but, you know, but I I think these are the kind of conversations we have to have that it's just, okay, let's chip away at that a little bit. Let's pull it out from under the rug and and maybe take a a closer look at how we can do that. Making it easier for us. Yes. A hundred percent. That's Bob and I, that's where we come from of how can we hopefully be helpful and do better and help all of us to, to maybe do a little better. Could not end on a more perfect note. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 